this can be active in your life and my life, but do we really expect that He's going to operate that way? Do we really expect that He is going to show up in the middle of our scene, in the middle of our hurt, in the middle of our grief, in the middle of our joy? Is He really going to show up and really be just as personal as He was in the Old Testament? You see, a lot of people look at the Old Testament and they don't view God as a personal God in the Old Testament. Well, they're not reading the same stories I'm reading because God is so personal and so real in the Old Testament just like He wants to be in your life and in my life. Today, we are going to look at the story of King Hezekiah. Okay, if you ever want to trick someone, tell them to turn to the book of Hezekiah in the Bible, okay? Because it ain't there, all right? I just want you to know that. King Hezekiah, we're going to look at him as a trusting king. The Bible talks about that Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings. He was more than likely the greatest king since King David. As God viewed all of the kings of the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, he looked upon Hezekiah favorably. Let me tell you how we know that a little bit. Well, we know that because there are 11 chapters in the Bible that deal with Hezekiah. Now, if you've looked at the Old Testament lately, a lot of times you'll see little snippets of stories, especially as you go through Judges, and sometimes people will occupy two or three verses, maybe a chapter. And usually in these Old Testament kings, especially the kings of Israel, it was typically... This was a bad dude. He went just like his fathers did. He followed other gods other than me. And that's the end of the story. That's the majority of all these northern kingdom kings. That's their story. Just a few little snippets. But Hezekiah has 11 chapters of the Old Testament dedicated to his rule and reign. You know, God is that personal with you. He has chapters and annals of his History. That is what we really understand. That's what history really is. That's what I'm going to tell Kara as she goes into world history this fall. Is History is really that. It is His story. History is God's story upon the face and His interaction with humanity. That's what God wants to do in my life and your life. So when you look at Hezekiah's life and go, well, is there going to be extra testaments that talk about us and talk about us as believers? And I believe the answer to that is no. But God knows your story. And you may not have chapters in the Bible written about you, but it's all written for you. It's all written that you might have a love affair with God. So let's look at Hezekiah's story. Where do we find it? We find it in three different actual places. First of all, we find it in 2 Kings 18-20. through 20. You also find it in 2 Chronicles 29-32. through 32. So there's four chapters dedicated there. And then also in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 36-39. through 39. Have you ever wondered how the Old Testament really worked? I mean, why do we have all these books and different things and they don't seem to be necessarily in chronological order? They are not in chronological order. Matter of fact, maybe the oldest book in the Old Testament is the book of Job. Job seems to talk about life as it was in those early years, even after Adam and Eve had been created by God. And it appears that Job is actually living back in those time periods. You have the book of Joshua and Judges, which talks about how God led the people out of Israel and established them in the land of Canaan. Then we have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles that basically tell us the story that we've been talking about, these Old Testament kings. Then you go into the exile 
And when the children of Israel, we're going to talk about that a little bit today, the children of Israel and of Judah were away from God. And we see that in those books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther talking about some of those time periods. But then you have the prophets. But you realize those prophets really were speaking into the life of Israel and Judah the whole time during the time of these kings. So when you put all those things together, that's the reason we find Hezekiah's story over in Isaiah. Because Isaiah was a prophet during the time when Hezekiah was reigning. So we see Hezekiah's story. But here's what's happening during this time. During the reign of Hezekiah, it takes place quite a bit later than the kings that we've been talking about. There are literally about 150 years that transpire from King Asa that we talked about last week to Hezekiah that we talk about this week. But Hezekiah is a king of Judah. He is in the line of David, so he is in line with where David reigned, and he is one of the great, great, great grandsons of David. But Hezekiah and Judah are on a collision course with a world power that was emerging, and that power was Assyria. And he is on a collision course with the king of Assyria, and his name is Sennacherib. So say Sennacherib with me. It's really fun. On three. One, two, three. Sennacherib. Okay, so see, it's so much fun to say Old Testament names. When you speak in Hebrew, you get to say a lot. And I mean, you can spit at people really, really well with Hebrew names. So Hezekiah would really be Hezekiah, something like that. But we're not going to go into that today. But Hezekiah was on a collision course with, with Assyria. Here is how I want to describe this with you. Sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, we don't get a really good view of really what was happening. Israel and Judah were very small powers on the world stage. They occupied a very small sliver of land, much like we see today. It was actually a little bit larger than what we see of Israel today. Do you realize how small of a nation Israel is in the world And yet, do you see how much of our news and how much of our media and how much is focused on this little, small country of Israel? I don't believe that's an accident. They are a testament of what God wants to show. And God wants to show us in them through their history so that we can see that God wants to act in a personal way with us. But here's little bitty Israel and actually little bitty Judah, which is only half the size of actually what we see in Israel today. Imagine this. We are the United States, and we have been reduced to our landmass of about the size of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Just Dallas and Fort Worth and cities to our south. And let's say China is the world power. And China has taken resident. To give you an idea of where this is and to put it in a geographical scale, if we were the smallest little bitty country of just the Dallas-Fort Worth area, that's about what... Israel and Judah was like and just 30 miles to our north in Denton, Texas was the greatest world power that's ever been that's how close they were they were on the move and Judah was on a collision course Hezekiah as king of Judah was on a collision course with this major world power I just want to set the setting for you so that you see how dire of straits this individual king is in when he comes to what we're talking about today. Here is what the Bible says about Hezekiah. Second Kings 18, 5 and 6 says this. This is why he's a trusting king. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him. 
Now, as much as I would not want to have been like Ahab, who was the worst of all kings, the ugliest of the ugly, I would love to have this written about me, like Hezekiah is written about. A man, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Why? Because he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. We've talked about this is not rocket science. What God desires of us is simply obedience. Obedience to the last thing that he told you to do. Obedience to whatever he's showing you on a daily basis in his word. We see, I, we see Hezekiah really like a three-act play. There are three events that take place in Hezekiah's life that Chronicles and Kings and Isaiah talk about. So we're going to talk about those three time periods, those three acts of Hezekiah's life. The first one is this. Hezekiah tr- was, a, was trusting God in worship. He was trusting God in worship. Now here is little bitty Judah. Remember, he is trying to figure out what on earth do I do as a king? I have got the greatest world power that I've ever seen and ever known in Assyria just 30 miles away. They have taken Samaria. It is during this time, and remember Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. In 723 B.C., Israel falls to Assyria. And what Assyria's claim to fame was is they would take everyone or as many people, especially the leaders, all out of their country and they would take them and disperse them to other places. And they would take other lands and peoples that they have conquered in other places and they would bring them and have them take residence in Israel. And the reason that they would do that is that they did not want anyone to have claim to an area because they wanted them to know that Assyria was the ruling power. It's not unlike many of our corporations today. If you'll notice, our corporations tend to move people around a lot because they never want people to develop roots so that their loyalties are more to a community than they are to the corporation. And that same thing was taking place in the life of Assyria. So in 723 B.C., as Hezekiah is reigning, in his sixth year of his reign, Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the capital of Samaria falls to the Assyrians. So they're just 30 miles away. This is the first act. And here is Hezekiah. He is trusting God in worship. Why? Hezekiah, what would we do as a king? We would probably see Assyria and go, well, we've got to muster the best army that we possibly can. And that's not what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah says, there's no way. There is no way on God's green earth or God's dry earth in our uh, setting right today, right? There is no way in God's earth that we are going to be able to build a big enough army to defeat Assyria. So what am I going to do? I'm going to trust God and worship. And we have in 2 Chronicles and in 2 Kings one of the most beautiful displays of worship. This is really a message Jason probably ought to be doing because he is our leader of worship. But Hezekiah trusts God in worship. And I want to display that to you today. Second Chronicles 29, verses 2 through 5 says this, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. And in the first year of his reign, okay, let's keep that, make a mental note of that. You're taking notes today. What's the very first thing? In the first year of Hezekiah's reign, he does this. In the first year, in the first month, 
he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Keep in mind, he had had kings before him who had done evil, who had set up Asherah, had set up Baal as other gods, had set up worship of of those gods, and had neglected the temple of God, so much so that the doors had actually been shut. So what does he do? He opens the doors of the house of the Lord and he repairs them. And he brought in the priests. Okay, I like to envision this. Hezekiah brings, and he's calling the boys up. He says, okay. I need everybody down here up front. Okay, we're going to talk for just a second. I need all the guys, I need all the priests to come up here. We're going to talk for just a few minutes. And he brought the priests and he brought the Levites in. These are the people who would operate the temple and would get it back in order. And he brought them and assembled them in the square on the east. And he said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now, consecrate yourselves. You need to start with your own heart. If you're going to trust God and worship... You and I need to start with our own heart. He says, consecrate yourselves and consecrate. Make holy the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. In trusting God and worship, the first thing that Hezekiah does is he makes preparation for worship. Preparation for worship. The question for us is, do we make preparation for worship? And when is worship? Now, it would be really easy for me to spiritually manipulate you this morning and say, worship only takes place at EVC on Sunday mornings between 9 and 10.45 and between 10.45 and 12.30. That's the only time that worship ever takes place. So you need to be here. This is High Attendance Sunday. So you need to be here because this is the only place that God meets with us. And that would be a lie. When I'm talking about preparation for worship, I am talking about what Sunday mornings does look like here. But here's my prayer for you. That when you come to worship on Sunday mornings, you've already experienced worship with God before you get here. And that you've been experiencing worship with God all through your week. You're preparing your heart for worship. Do you trust God with your worship like Hezekiah did? We need to be in preparation for worship. How did Hezekiah prepare the people for worship? The first thing that we see him do is something that Asa, we saw Asa do last week. It's something that we've seen other good kings do if you read through Chronicles and Kings. 2 Kings 18.4 says this. What did Hezekiah do? He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces. This is very interesting. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Do you remember that? Do you remember when Moses made the bronze serpent? Numbers 21, verse 9. If you want to look that up, go back to Numbers 21, verse 9. Here's what had occurred. The people of Israel were disobeying God, and God sent what he calls fiery serpents down upon them. Now, again, I don't know if you read the Old Testament, but that kind of stuff gets my attention. Usually about 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm dreaming about things like fiery serpents. Can you imagine being on the scene? Can you imagine if you would have turned back to God if God is sending fiery serpents? Okay, do you want me to pray that over anybody over here? Okay, no, no. It's much easier to come back to God on your own, okay? I just want you to know that. Remember that. But God sends fiery serpents, and Moses, God tells him to make this bronze serpent and to hold it up, and that when the people look to it, they will be healed. It's a picture of the cross. He raises it up, and it's a picture pointing forward to Christ that when we go to the cross, when we look to the cross, then we too...
can experience the healing that God desires for us. But here in the Old Testament, these individuals in Hezekiah's reign had elevated the worship of this bronze serpent to a point that God never intended. And so what does Hezekiah do? He tears it down and he destroys it. He was a man after God's own heart, a man after David's own heart. He tore down all the idols. And again, for us to prepare for worship, it means that we take out the things in our lives that want to beg and borrow for our attention. We talked about that before, so I'm going to keep moving, but just think about what are those things in my life? What are the things in my life that take the attention away that God really desires? Preparation for worship doesn't take place just on Sundays. It takes place every day of your week. How does God want your attention? When 1 Thessalonians talks about the fact that we can pray without ceasing, what he's really talking about is that we can live our lives in such a way that we are in constant prayer with God. That does not mean that I pray, okay, because that's kind of like texting and driving. That's not such a good idea for us to do is to close your eyes in prayer all the time. What it means is this that you are in constant worship with your heavenly Father because you can keep this conversation continually going on. He wants your attention. God craves your attention. The Bible says He is a jealous God who wants our, all of our lives. He wants every bit of us. But a second thing that we see that Hezekiah does is he not, just rem- does not only remove the idols. Second Chronicles 29 verse 36 says this, And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced. Now listen to this. Because God had prepared for the people. That's a little bit different. For this thing came about suddenly. Do you realize this? God prepares himself for your worship. I don't know if that excites you, but the same God of this Old Testament that we see doing these incredible things, The same God that this week, when our staff got together and prayed on Wednesday, we walked out of that staff meeting, and two of the things that we prayed for, God did before we left that morning on this past Wednesday. That kind of personal-natured God wants to act on your behalf, and He prepares Himself for you to worship Him. It was unbelievable to me when I read that. I had to read it two and three times again. God prepares Himself for our worship? So here's a question for you and I. How do we prepare ourselves for worship? Jennifer and I have talked about this as as a family. You know, as a family, one way that we prepare ourselves for worship on Sundays is that our daughters almost never have sleepovers on Saturday nights. Now, why is that? We believe that it is important for them to be awake and alert on a Sunday, for them to actually be able to participate in worship rather than falling asleep because they've been up till 3 or 4 a.m., Moms and dads, we have choices to make as parents, but you have choices to make as adults. I mean, how many people in the room today watched Michael Young hit that single last night, okay, and you saw the Ranger game end? Okay, you were up with me. You were up late. That's okay. But if you're like me, normally when I'm excited about stuff like that, I can't go to sleep for several hours. But how do we prepare ourselves for worship? Especially when the girls were younger, we would always, and I say we, this is only Jennifer, because we never take, we, we always take two cars for Sundays, okay? That's just what pastors and pastors' wives do, is we're always in two separate vehicles. But when she would drive the girls to church, she would always have worship music playing on the way to church. But what does that say about our lives all through the week? Am I saying that you can only have worship music on your car all through the week? 
No. You can choose whatever. You can choose sports radio. But here's what my point is this. Did I just say that? I just slipped right out, did I? Don't look at my... Don't look at my radio stations. But how does God want to prepare your heart for worship? All through the week, you can be listening to what God has in store for you. My friend Bennett down here made me a CD this past week. And as I played it, it was worship songs that we've done here at EVC just over the last month. It was just a blessing to my heart just to to hear those songs because it placed me right back here. As I heard those songs, I saw many of your faces. And the question for us is, if God prepares Himself for our worship, how do we prepare for Him? How flippantly do we just lead our lives and just say, oh, we're just heading to church, it's just what we do. Oh, we're just reading God's Word in the morning, it's just what we do. Prepare your hearts for worship. That's the first thing we see in trusting God in worship. Hezekiah prepared his heart for worship. The second thing we see about worship in this first act of Hezekiah's life is he positioned himself for worship. He not only prepared his heart for worship, but he got himself in the flow of where God was. Listen to 2 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 12. Now it is my heart. Listen to what Hezekiah says. Now it is my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, to make an agreement with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that His fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, that's what I love about Hezekiah. He always focuses it back on his legacy. My sons, my priests, my Levites, my folks who are gathered around me, do not now be negligent. For the Lord has chosen you to stand in His presence, to minister to Him, and to be His ministers and make offerings to Him. What God says through Hezekiah is this, My sons, do not be negligent, but position yourself in the place where God can show up in your life. For many of us, we would read this passage and we would say, well, he's really talking to priests and Levites, so this message must be just for pastors, okay? This must be for pastors that they should get their lives right so they can lead people in worship. And the answer is yes, and it's also for you. Because do you realize because of this little belief that we have called priesthood of the believer, that every single person who is here this morning, every single person who would listen to this message, every single person who has Christ in their life, that you are a priest before God and you are a son. Do not forget what 2 Peter uh, talks about. Actually, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people after God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is not a message for pastors only. It is a message for us as the church, the body of Christ, that we should position ourselves in a place where we can receive everything that God has in store for us. It's not about a Sunday morning message. It's about a message that He desires to give to us every day of the week to position ourselves. Well, how do we position ourselves? 2 Chronicles 30 verse 8 shows us how Hezekiah positioned himself in the people of Israel. He says, 
Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were. I love that phrase. Do not be stiff-necked, okay? Maybe he should say, do not be red-necked, okay? That, that may be the thing that he should say. I, I actually saw a restaurant that's going in on 820 called like the Redneck House or something like that. I said, only in Texas would you have the Redneck House. But he says, do not be stiff-necked. Do you see what that means? It is like you have this stiff neck and you are going one way. You will not turn your neck the other way. You are stiff-necked. You won't listen to what God has in store for you because your neck is stiff. You won't turn yourself to God because you have a stiff neck. You have a hard head. Am I speaking to anybody this morning? Amen? Okay. You're hard-headed. You go in one direction. Okay? I'd be raising my hand at that, but we're stiff-necked. We're the people of God. He says, do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but this word, but yield. Yield yourselves to the Lord and to come into His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that His fierce anger may turn away from you. I love this principle of yielding. That's what we do with God. Have you ever seen two huge rivers come into flow together? When they come into flow together, do you know what the water from one and the water of the other really look like once they're intermingled and mixed? You don't know the difference between the two because they've literally yielded together. I've told you that I've been working with Kara as she's learning to drive, as she is just a couple of months away from her license. And that whole idea of yielding into traffic is a scary thing, isn't it? It's like this movement where you have to make your way, but you have to pay attention to where others are and where the flow of traffic is. Don't miss this. This is what our lives with God are supposed to be. God is already on a journey. And what our lives are to yield to where He's at. To get in the flow of where God is. Some of us pray like this. God, I'm I'm over here. Anytime you're ready, I'm right here if you just want to come my way. God, if you want to minister to me, just come on. Here I am. You see, we are very ethnocentric, very me-centered in our view of God. We think God exists for our happiness. That is not the view of of the Bible. That is not the view that God desires for us to have. You see, we are to be God-centric. We are to be God-centered, where God is the center of everything. And our job is to find out where He's working and to get in flow with Him. As we've heard from Cherie and Justin and, and Perry, as they are talking about going on this Mexico trip, what they've said is God is at work, and I am going to yield to put myself in line with where He is working. We yield. And this was seen beautifully This week, as Laura Nelson, as she sometimes does, as she is hearing from God, she likes to share that. And I am so thankful she did this week because she she found this devotional and she shared it with me. And I just want to read it the way it reads because I think it does a much better job than I could talk about yielding. It says, do we understand the ways of God? Understanding God is different than believing in God. To understand means that we can come into alignment by acknowledging the decisions God makes on our behalf. We do not have to agree with the decision because we understand that God's ways are higher than ours. We can yield to Him 
at that point, we show our trust in His ways as we continue to seek and submit to His will. Now then, the illustration. Here's how we can get it, especially parents of teenagers. Listen up to this. As a parent, I have been challenged to explain why I am making certain decisions. If my decision pleases my children, no discussion is necessary. Okay, I love that. If my decision pleases my daughters, then no discussion is necessary. You guys, got, you guys want to go out to eat Mexican food tonight. No problem, Dad. We are yielding to what you want to do, okay? Because we want to go where you're going. Do you guys want to go on vacation to Hawaii? Oh, yeah, let's yield to where Dad wants to go. Do you guys want to clean your room? Hmm, wait a second. Now, I don't know that I am ready to yield to that. So, no discussion is necessary. Now, when you think of your teenagers, think of yourself between you and God. As long as God is heading in the direction that you want Him to go, do you buck what He wants you to do? No. But it's when we come in conflict with where God desires that we get stiff-necked, right? He says, however, if I disagree, I am sought out to discuss and debate why my choices did not match their heart's desire. As a parent, I have the right to make final decisions as much as I have the right to explain or not explain the factors that went into making those decisions. My children then have the right to agree or disagree with my decisions. But what a joy when they understand and accept them as is. Do you feel that as parents? What a joy when our children accept the direction that we want to go and the instructions as is. But don't miss the message. When God comes to us, He shares with us, my child, this is the way I want you to go. I know it doesn't make sense to you. I know you can't see why. But I need you to yield to me because I know what's best for you. I created you. I know your heart because I built it. And I know that you're resisting me right now. But I need you to yield to me. I love that illustration. Thank you, Laura, for sharing it with me because... That's what God wants to do in our lives. When we position ourselves in worship, what we're saying is this. I'm going to get in God's flow. I'm not going to stand obstinate to what God wants me to do. And it leads us to this third point in worship, which is our posture in worship. Our posture in worship. We not only prepare for worship, we don't just position ourselves for worship, but there is a posture for worship. There is a way that we can worship God in openness. Now, before I get into this this morning, I'm not saying that you have to lift your hands in worship. I'm not saying that you need to close your eyes and do different things. I don't know what you see other people do in worship, but I was in, when I was in college, this was a huge deal. I went to a Baptist college in southwest Missouri, and posture in worship was really a big deal to we Baptists back in the 80s and 90s. When people would raise their hands, oh, they're charismatic, oh my, they're going to do this, they're that. We were so judgmental. I can remember having discussions with guys in my dorm, okay, now keep in mind, I know, 
being a Baptist school and being a person going into ministry, I know us even discussing worship in our dorm is quite different than what many of you were discussing in your dorms. I understand. But that was where I was at at the time. And I understood, but we used to judge people for the way that they were, how they postured themselves in worship. So what we're not about here at EVC is that you have to worship God in a particular way. But here's what we're also about. We want you to have freedom to worship God how He shows you and how He wants you to. We want you to have freedom to worship in your way and not that you have to worship the way somebody else does. But what is the posture of worship that we see in the life of Hezekiah? Because it's a good posture of worship. Second Chronicles 29, verses 29 through 31. We see that he says, When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah, the king and officials, commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, which is a key word. And they bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, You have consecrated now yourselves before the Lord. Come near. Come near. That's a posture of worship. To come near to God. I hope when we sing, when we preach, when we teach, when we share together in life groups, I hope that you feel a sense that you're coming nearer to God than you were. That's a posture in worship. The whole idea of a community, the whole idea of a community of faith is that we would sense God's presence moving. The whole idea of God's stories is that you would see God's stories in other people's lives and begin to expect God to do things in your life like He's doing in others. It's not that He has to do it the same way, but that you gain an anticipation that God wants to act on your behalf because He's that personal. And then He says, And the assembly brought the sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. What do you bring to God today? What posture of worship do you bring Him? Do you bring Him a sense of being stiff-necked and not willing to flow where God wants you to go? Do you bring a sense of ready to yield to Him today wherever He shows you you need to be and what you need to do? Do you bring a willing offering to God today? As Romans 12 says, my life is a living offering. What God will do with a burnt sacrifice, that's an Old Testament system, but He wants to use your life, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice today. What's your posture of worship? So this is the first act in the life of Hezekiah. The very first thing that he does is he gets the people in line with God. He knows that he's no military opposition for Assyria. He cannot defeat them himself. But he what? He is a trusting king. And he trusts God. So the very first thing that he does is the very first thing we should do. And that's to get our hearts ready for what God wants to do. But here's the second thing that we see in the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a trusting king because he trusts God in adversity. He trusts God in adversity. Here comes Assyria. The enemy is approaching. They're coming. Hezekiah attempts to prepare. And what I want you to see today is that there are enemies in your life that approach you. And when you see Hezekiah facing Sennacherib, like I've said, These Old Testament stories are always a portrayal of something in the future as well as they are evident and very real for the people who were experiencing them. 
when we see Sennacherim, we need to also see Satan as he seeks to employ different devices in our life. The enemy approaches. He approaches in adversity. He approaches in difficulty. As last night, we learned that four teenagers in our own community lost their life in a vehicle. Adversity has approached our own community. As last night, at a skating rink at a child's birthday party, someone gets upset with another family member, I guess. The details are still unfolding. I haven't heard them. But in a skating rink in Grand Prairie, at least five people are killed. In Norway, the death toll is, what, 94 today. Adversity approaches us. We can see it in the news, but my guess is you can see it in your own life. The enemy approaches. Sennacherib is coming. How how do we see Hezekiah dealing with them? The first thing that we see in trusting God in adversity in the life of Hezekiah is you better know your enemy. You better know who he is. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 15 says this. Now, therefore, this is, this is an, a, an, a person who is sent now to go to Hezekiah and to the children of Israel and to give them a word from Sennacherib. This is what he says. This is the accuser himself. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. And do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver His people from my hand. That's what Sennacherib says. No other God of any other nation has been able to deliver those people from me. So why Israel, why Judah, do you think that your God is going to deliver you? How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? The first thing that we see in the life of Hezekiah in trusting God in adversity is we had better know our enemy. The scene is this. Sennacherib now comes from his 30-mile distance of Samaria where he has already conquered, and he moves on towards Judah. And he sends his envoys before him, and he tells them to begin to speak. And they first send out a small party from Judah to talk with them, and they want to work out a deal. They want to exchange some gold and some silver and some money. They want to buy off Sennacherib so that he will leave them alone but as they begin to talk they're speaking in the language of aramaic that only the envoys from judah and the envoys from assyria would understand together and then he begins to speak in hebrew and he begins to shout to all the people who've gathered on the wall and he begins to speak in their own language and he says don't let hezekiah deceive you Don't let this king who has taken you in worship of this God, don't let him believe that he is actually going to be able to defeat us. They're actually thumbing their noses in the face of God. And we need to know our enemy. We need to know how he accuses. Here's what Satan will do to you. He will tell you that you are not God's child. He will tell you that you've screwed up so many times that you're not worthy of God's love. He will tell you that you don't have the power and the ability to defeat Him. Go back to the book of Genesis. Look at His ploys when He would operate with Adam and Eve. Go to Matthew chapter 4 and how He went up against Jesus, the very Son of God, and how He tempted Him. Pay very close attention to how Satan accuses and seeks to defile the people of God in the Old Testament. Why? 
He hadn't changed. The same way that he accused then, he'll accuse you today. What did he do with Hezekiah? He criticized him. He appealed to their own needs and their own desires. One thing that this envoy from Assyria says is that if you come with us, each man will have his own well. He'll have his own vineyard. He appeals to their own human nature. That's exactly what Satan does to us. He appeals to our own nature and says, you need this. You deserve this. You need to go in this direction, away from God, because God doesn't have the best things in store for you. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. He said, did God say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. God said you shouldn't eat of one. But Satan tried to make it as if God said you shouldn't eat of any. See, Satan will always take a little piece of the truth and he will twist it in your life until he hooks you and then he drags you along. Just like a fisherman with bait. Just like a trapper with a trap. That's what Satan desires to do. So the first thing we do is we need to know our enemy. The second thing we should do is strengthen our defenses. 2 Chronicles 32, verses 4 through 6 says this. A great many people were gathered and they stopped up the springs. Okay, here's what's happening. There is one water source that comes into Jerusalem. And they do not want Assyria to have access to this water source. So they plug it up and they have it only coming into Jerusalem, but they do not allow it to leave. And the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Why should they come and enjoy all of our work? And he set to work resolutely and built up the wall that was broken down. And he raised towers upon it. And outside of it he built another wall. And he strengthened the millow in the city of David. And he made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set commanders over the people. And he gathered them together in the square of the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them. The other thing that we learn from Hezekiah is you need to know your enemy, but you need to strengthen your defenses. What you're doing by being here today, I hope and my prayer is that it strengthens your defenses. When I read this, it reminded me of Ephesians. When Ephesians chapter 6 talks about how our enemy prowls around and he seeks to devour us and he uses weapons, he uses fiery darts. And then the Bible talks about, Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the weapons of our warfare. And he talks about the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. He talks about our defenses. You and I need to be prepared for Satan's onslaught in our lives and strengthen our defenses. Third thing we see in the life of Hezekiah is that his focus was on the Lord but not on his own ability. His focus is on God and not on his own ability. And here's how we can sometimes get tricked into whatever Satan desires for us, is that we find our place of strength and we operate in that place of strength. And then he finds a new weakness or he finds another area for us because we think we're strong in and of ourselves. You need to know your enemy so well that you focus not on your own ability but on Christ. Hezekiah says this, 2 Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. It's the same word that David gave to his son Solomon, that kazakh word. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed around the king of Assyria and all the horde 
that is with him. I love that word, horde. That demon horde, okay? That, that horde that is with him, this teeming group of people. Do not be afraid of them. Why? For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence of Hezekiah, king of Judah. What happened? What happens is pretty incredible. Without one horseman going out of the city, with one, without one arrow being shot, 185,000 soldiers are killed by the angel of the Lord. And Sennacherib decides he doesn't want to mess with Judah right now. Isaiah the prophet is brought in. He's the one who gives this word to Hezekiah that Hezekiah then gives to the people. For lack of time today, I can't describe all of it to you, but Isaiah gives Hezekiah the word, and he says, go and tell the people that God is with them. And not only that, but Sennacherib will be turned, and he will go home. He will never set one foot in Jerusalem, and he will go home, and he will be killed, assassinated by his own two sons in his own temple back in Assyria. And that's exactly what happens. And history has played out. Even Assyrian history points back to the fact that Sennacherib was assassinated by his two sons and never set foot in Jerusalem. When you and I depend upon God to be our source, there is nothing that can stand in our way. But when we continually, as is our American tradition, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and think that we can do it, we will fall flat on our face. The message from Hezekiah is, trust God in adversity and know your enemy and know your dependence upon God. The final thing I want to share today is simply this. We can trust God with our future. I'm going to ask Jill Mullinax to come up here because I want to tell you, I want her to tell you a little bit of her story You guys be praying for Jill. She said she might cry. That's okay, Jill. We're going to do that. God loves us in our tears. So, Jill, just in your story, in in this whole idea that God, we can trust God with our future. A few weeks ago, Cameron went to basic training. Have you had contact with him since then? This will be the fifth week that he's gone. Um, We waited and waited to get his address. We finally got his address. We were so thrilled. I was so thrilled to see handwriting. And I was able to write letters to him. But um, it was quite a while before I heard from him. At last, the letters came. I got two on the same day, but um, I could tell. I wasn't really sure he had gotten mine yet from the way he wrote. So as you're writing him, you've been writing him letters Maybe on a daily basis, perhaps? Every, every day. Every day, very long. <laughs> okay, there, there are other moms out them. here. So you've been writing him every day. And so when you got Cameron's letter, you, you began to understand that he had not been getting your letters. Yeah, at first I was so excited because I felt like that connection was back because him being out of the house was so hard. Just the mommy part of me, being able to think, well, I'm, I'm reaching him, was such a comfort. Um about the fourth letter that came, they were very erratic. He said he had received no mail at all. He was writing blindly all those letters that he wrote to me and all the things he was saying he had heard from no one. Mm. So it, 
it broke my heart from the sense that he's brave and he's strong. I'm the one that's having a hard time. Um, it was it just burdened me because I wanted to support him. I wanted him to know how much we loved him and how proud we were of him. But he wasn't receiving any mm. of that. It was just me sending out the letters, and apparently in the military they hold them up and they go through him. So I had actually gotten his letters, but he had gotten nothing from us. So last week we were talking about just the personal nature of God and calling upon God to meet a specific need in your life. So how did the story continue? What happened? Well, I got the letter, and when I, I got two letters at the same time, and when I read that he had not received anything, my heart just broke, and it, 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 it was such a burden, and it bothered me all night. I couldn't sleep, tossed and turned, prayed about it, and when I got up the next morning, I was on my way to work. I prayed about it in the car all the way to work. And the Lord began to minister to me. And I thought about the sermon from the Sunday before about how he really does care about those things. And scriptures begin to come to me. And, and I know that all things do work together. And I know that Cameron is where he's supposed to be. He told me he's reading his Bible. He's closer to God than he's ever been. Praise the Lord for that. Um, and my heart just began to turn, and I realized, well, you know, God, you knew the mail wouldn't show up. I don't know what the reason is. I don't know why. I know you're changing Cameron. I know you're building him, and he's growing. So I'm just going to let that go. Even though my heart is broken, I don't know why he hasn't gotten the mail. But all things work together for your glory, and I'm going to rest in that. But I did humbly ask if he could please speed up the military mail. <laughs> is there any way? All right, speed up the military. I'm not sure that that is an actual thing that actually hurries. Okay. Well, and, and like I said, I asked humbly, please. I do want God's will in Cameron's life. I know he will face hardships, and that going through hardships makes us stronger and makes us depend on God more. So my faith heart knew that, but my mom's heart just really wanted a letter in that kid's hand, you know. I can't stand the thought of him at roll call and other people's names being called and his not. Mm. So anyway, I prayed about it, but the Lord really did comfort me. And by the time I got to work, I really had an ease and a peace in my heart. And as I walked in, because I knew my day was going to be busy, I asked him one more time, could he please just get a letter today or tomorrow, please, God. Mm. So I went into work, and as I knew, I got really busy. I, I work at Walmart. Um, I worked in the back room that morning. I wasn't out on the sales floor at all. Um, so I was in contact with no one. About mid-morning, one of my friends came and said, hey, let's take a break. We went to the front of the store, took a break, and in the five minutes that it took me to walk from the back of the store back to the back offices again, I was going down an aisle, and as I looked up, there was a Marine in full dress blues coming towards me. And my heart flipped over because I know someday soon I'm going to see Cameron in that same uniform. Yeah. And... I thought, well, you know, I'm going to speak to him as he comes towards me. My son has made me a much better patriot. And um, I thought, I'm going to thank him for what he's doing for our country. I'm going to say something to him. So as he approached, we both began to look at each other. And as we got closer, we realized that we knew each other. And it was like, oh, my goodness. And he said, Mead, Mead's mom, which my son is Cameron Mead. And I said, yes, it was his recruiter. And um, he said, oh, you work here? And I was like, yes. So we had a visit, and we were talking. He had many questions about Cameron. And in the course of our visit, I was able to confess to him my sorrow over Cameron not receiving any mail. And he got the biggest smile on his face, and he reached out, and he took my hand, and he said, well, how about I be your letter? I fly out to San Diego tonight, and I will see Cameron tomorrow morning. Mm. And my heart just jumped for joy because 
while that might not mean anything to anyone else, that meant the world to me to know that God was working on Cameron's behalf. And so he did fly out that night. I haven't heard from him yet because he's not back. But I know that God heard my prayer and he answered. And when I went to bed that night, I was just overjoyed because I knew he got more than a letter. Mm-hmm. He got a personal face with a person with a handshake from someone that he really respects a lot. And he was able to tell him everything that I wanted to say to him. And he, I'm sure he told him, your mom has written you a letter every day. <laughs> he probably told him your mom is crazy <laughs> because I jumped up and down and hugged him when he told me. So Thank you for that story. Now that... That's how personal God is. That's how personal God wants to be in your life and in my life. You can trust God with your future. We want you to share those God stories. We want to share them with, the, with our congregation because I'm so thankful that God worked in Jill's life that way. But I've heard from several of you all through the week, through these stories, God's working. Isn't it a great testimony to know that God as that personal nature and that you can trust God with your future. Hezekiah trusted him with his future. Here's how it operated in Hezekiah's life. Hezekiah, the first act was him getting the, the worship together. The second act was him coming against the enemy. The third act is Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, Hezekiah, get your house in order because... You're going to die. You've been a good king, but God says you're going to die. Hezekiah cries out to the Lord, as he's so often done. And God, as Isaiah is walking away, somehow speaks to Isaiah again and turns him back around and says, Go back and tell Isaiah, or to go back and tell Hezekiah, I'm going to give him 15 more years. Trusting God with his future. God gave Hezekiah. Fifteen more years. That's the personal nature of God who can speak to Jill and through Jill and speak to Cameron all the way in San Diego. God spoke to Hezekiah and said, Fifteen more years of life. Can you trust God with your future? Can you trust Him with everything? If God came to you today and that was the question, and with this we close today, I'm going to give you fifteen more years. Would you live life differently in those 15 years, knowing that they would be your last? The truth is, not every person in here will have 15 years. The truth is, some of us may only have today. Some of us may have 40 years. Some of us may have 60. But will we live our life differently? Will we trust God with our future? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? My prayer is that something this morning has resonated with you in preparation as you trust God with your worship, as you trust God with your adversity, as you trust God with your future. I want you to think about that last question. God gave you one more year. Would you live it differently? Do you trust Him enough with this? Father, I I just pray for every person here this morning that they would hear from you Lord, whatever you want to say, that we would yield to where you want us to be. That the life of Hezekiah would be so real to us that you loved him so much that we can see you operating in your word. 
We can see it lived out in Jill's story with Cameron. Father, You want to touch each individual heart. You're such a big God that You can touch us individually. Meet us right where we're at. Whatever message we needed to hear today. Maybe it's something that we need to go from this place and hear. But God, I pray most of all that people, that our blessed people here, Father, hear that You love them with an everlasting love and that You want to be so real to them. Father, meet us in our every need. Lord, we pray that this offering that we give back to You today is simply a testimony of how we can be personal with You since You've given us so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As our ushers go ahead and take up our offering this morning, I just want you to to be in this moment. As you think about those God stories, as you think about what God has done in your life, I hope you'll share. And I hope you know that, that we want those to be up. The first one, actually, Jill's is already up on, on evcgodstories.com. It's already there and it's, it's available there. So we want you to, to not only read that, but to hear others' stories as well and to share those. I want to remind you to be in prayer this week for our student ministry. They're at camp this week. And it is hot. They're actually just going to be close to us in Arlington. But, um, but we know that Arlington is really, really hot. Okay, so be praying for them. And just be, pray this prayer, that God would speak to them and would light a fire in their lives that really carries over to our whole church. Be praying for them this week. There's a Women's Envision Conference that will be taking place October 14th and 15th. Priscilla Shire will be speaking there. It is very close to us and we have a it's going to be located in keller and we want you to know that there's a group of our ladies that are going to be going however there is the deadline for the early price of this is july 31st so ladies if you've not heard of priscilla shire you need to she is a phenomenal speaker she is tony evans daughter and tony evans is a pastor of oak cliff bible church in dallas but priscilla is his daughter, and she is phenomenal. So that is taking place October 14th and 15th. Registration is $29. You can use your, your bulletin to register for that. Bryn Childers is right up here, and so Bryn, I'm going to ask you to come up front if you have questions about that. But the deadline for early payment for that is July 31st at that price. So please, ladies, get in on this as quickly as possible. We're sorry for the late notice. We just found out about it ourselves. Also, there's a, we're going to be doing an event on August 11th through the 13th, this, so that whatever happens today, Father, no ball games, no golf, no, Father, activities would come between your Spirit speaking very specifically to each heart who's here today. Father, I pray that you bless this offering this morning and that, Lord, as we receive from you through the resources that you've placed in the lives of our people, God, that you would multiply it and do much more than we could ever think or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.